0: Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham.
1: Welcome, 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 welcome. I said it four times, that's a clue. If you want to run with the game-changers, you are in the right place. Let's see what the buzz is today. I have a quote from a young man named Dane Miller, D A I A and a former presidential innovation fellow at the White House, a mentor for developers at StartHere.fm, and he works to lead engineering teams at a distributed media company. Interesting quote. Listen up. There are a couple of key words here. UI is the saddle, the stirrups, and the reins. UX is the feeling you get being able to ride the horse and rope your cattle. I love that quote. So what are we talking about here? Okay, let's look back a couple of years. I want you all to put your memory caps on. Do you remember how excited you were and, and how much anticipation you had when you got your first smartphone? What was it? What was it going to do for you? Could you actually type real letters on a keyboard without having to push shift and go through an alphabet and numbers and all that stuff? And what about when you typed the at sign online for the first time, anticipating reaching something called a website, and you were going to visit it, what would happen? Well, your experience in both of these cases was in the hands of UX designers for these interfaces. They had to get you to there. So today, as our world becomes increasingly digital, and we know that's the truth, more than ever, we expect great experiences every time we interact with a business, with an organization, with a person in a small business, a big business, and with their products and services. So the question on the table today is... Do UX designers ever sleep at night anymore? Well, we have four people who are going to help us answer that. We'll find out if they have a lot of caffeine in their cup today. That might answer it right away. Let me tell you who they are and then we will get started. First up, and by the way, we did part one of this topic, which is UX 2018, User Experiences for a New Generation. We did this a couple weeks ago on January 18th, 2018, on our series called Internet of Things with Game Changers to launch Season 5. And I've invited the panel back because it was so interesting. So... Coming up on the panel right now are Matt Graycar. He spells his name G-R-A-J-K-A-R, Senior Interaction Designer at Google. Joining him will be Sean Sievertson, a managing partner at Convergent IS. Joining them is Maricel Cabahug, Senior VP of Global Design, UX, Fiori Product Management at SAP. And I missed R.J. Owen. R.J., I didn't forget you, but your paragraph was indented. He's a Senior Technology and User Experience Consultant and the host of Denver's Chapter of Creative Mornings so welcome back to our panelists Matt gray carr has sent me the following quote to kick off this off the quote is from Frank Lloyd Wright American architect interior designer writer and educator lived from 19 let's see 1867 to 1959 designed more than a thousand structures and more than half of them were actually completed he also designed furniture and stained glass and he was recognized by the AIA American Institute of Architects as the greatest American architect of all time so madam glad you picked the quote here it is the good building is not one that hurts the landscape but one which makes the landscape more beautiful than it was before the building was built matt Graycar, welcome back how are you today i'm doing well thanks for having me back we are delighted you earned the right to come back so talk to me about this frank lloyd Wright quote go ahead
2: yeah um well i've always been a huge fan of frank lloyd Wright. um and for some weird reason, uh, I think I've always somehow related what I do in UX design to, uh, to architecture and kind of spatial, mm. spatial design. Uh, you know, both are an experience. Um, and I, I would actually encourage uh, everyone listening to go just look up Frank Lloyd Wright quotes, because a lot mm-hmm. of them are fascinating, and he had a pretty good sense of humor. Um, but this, this quote uh, stood out to me when I first heard it a while back. Um, because I think he's right. I think when you're designing anything, you have to take context into into consideration. Um, and we we touched on this a little bit uh, in the last episode. But mm-hmm. um, you know being careful as a, as a designer to to not require your you know y- your users to uh, drop everything they're doing and use your app. It should complement the experience and the context they're in. So in this quote, if you looked at a building as being an application and the landscape as being the context, um, I think that uh, as designers, it's important to kind of take that into consideration. Um, uh, You know, one example would be like, oh, I don't know. uh, Well, one one I've been particularly struck with lately is Google Photos, you know, creating albums and videos kind of behind Mm -hmm. the scenes while I'm, you know, taking pictures and, and my phone's in my pocket and Google photos is kind of making sense of it all. And, and coming up with these charming little videos and albums and things like that. That's, that's so nice. You know, I don't have to spend the time to do all that. It probably does a better job than I would, uh, anyway. And it puts some nice music to it and that's making my content useful to me.
1: Um, and it, so. It sounds like it's creating a delightful experience, isn't it, Matt? Deli- it's delighting you. And you're an experienced user. You're an experienced right. designer yourself. So to delight you, I would imagine, would be a great compliment to them. Am I right?
2: <laughs> uh, I, I hope so.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give you that accolade. You can take that one. I just want to add one more comment. From, from the quote and the way you explained it, Matt, it seems like there's an extra layer of responsibility of the UX designer to consider the quote-unquote landscape and making it more beautiful, not just what will the user see, what will they click, what will they hear, but what's happening around me. Let's just leave that one on the table, and maybe we'll pick it up as an idea for the roundtable. So, Matt, thank you for coming back. And now let's move around the table slightly to R.J. Owen. And R.J. has sent us a quote from Frank and I have the pronunciation here. K-Mero, and it's C-H-I-M-E-R-O. He's a writer, designer, illustrator. I have a quote from his website. Frank K. says, I run a one-man studio from Brooklyn, that's New York, specializing in publication design for page and screen, digital design systems, and image making. In 2011, I'm going to go to third person now, Frank K. wrote and self-published the book, The Shape of Design, a little philosophical handbook about making things for other people that he wishes he had at the start of his design career his clients include the new york times nike Wired, time magazine chronicle books microsoft npr bloomberg business week starbucks and more so he's a real go-getter and here's the quote that rj has selected people ignore design that ignores people i think we're in a circular loop here welcome back rj how are you today
3: i'm doing great bonnie thanks for having me back
1: Oh, I'm delighted you as just like Matt and everybody else you were. You earned the the key to coming back and Coffee Break the show we're on now is our our biggest series, the most popular one of all cuz this was this is the mommy of all the game changer shows. So, I really wanted to bring this topic to the bigger audience because it was just great when we spoke a few weeks ago. So, tell me, how did you come across Frank Camero, and how did you pick this quote for our show today, RJ?
3: Well, I can't even remember the first time I ran into Frank Camaro. He's done really amazing work to uh, push design on the web um, in particular. And I read The Shape of Design, his book, a few years ago, and it's been really inspirational for me and helping me sort of uh, put together some thoughts around what it means to design for digital things or digital places. And I love this quote because I think that in the, uh, the way that people have access to businesses and have access to brands through devices and through technology today, um, it means that more than ever, our interaction with companies and brands is conversational. And when people feel like the conversation is rude or that they're being ignored, they mm-hmm. have more power than ever to turn that back on the brand and be rude or ignore the brand back. And uh, so I thought that was just such a clever, really concise way of, of saying um, you know that our consumers have more power than they ever have, and they're they're kind of not going to put up with companies that don't respect them and don't respect that.
1: Very interesting. Just a quick sidebar here, RJ. I wanted to buy, um, in my family, we buy e-gift cards for the grandchildren, for my kids. Everybody's pretty much grown up now. We don't do the wrap gift thing anymore. I just ask, where do you want? And I do it. In two recent episodes, I won't name, but these are major, major, major big brand retailers. I was unable to get an e-card after six tries on two different websites. Huh. I know what I'm doing. And I was unable to complete the transaction. It was elusive. It kept telling me it was sending it to a snitch- mail mail address when I had selected e card. It did not show the note I had written with the recipient's email address. I finally texted my granddaughter whose birthday was the following day and I said, give me another retailer. I can't do this. And I had to do the same with the other <laughs> granddaughter. And these are big, big companies. Now how yeah. bad does a UX have to be RJ? Seriously, to put me in into twenty to thirty minutes and not being able to buy an e card. Give me a break, right? Right. Yeah. There you go. Yeah that's there you go we need uh, Frank Camaro to talk to them. We really do. Okay, I'll give him a call after the show. Thank you, RJ. Inspirational. Sean Severson, managing partner at Convergent IS, has sent us another quote from Sir Richard Branson because he likes Sir Richard Branson, and we all do. Sir Richard Charles Nicholas Branson, born in 1950, still around. Let's see. Latest, he was knighted at Buckingham Palace for services to entrepreneurship back in 2000, and in 2002 he was named in the BBC's poll of the 100 Greatest Britons in 2004 he founded the Space Flight corporation virgin galactic etc etc and he has a lot of money let's leave it at that here's the quote do not be embarrassed by your failures learn from them and start again sean sievertson welcome back how are you doing
4: great this morning thanks how are you
1: uh, well, thank you for asking. That's very kind. I'm I'm happy to have the four of you. We're going to get Maricel on here in a couple of minutes and I'm happy to have the four of you back. It's an exciting topic and I, I feel every time I speak to this panel, I learn something new and I hope that's going to be the same for the audience. So Branson's quote, who's getting embarrassed? How do you learn from the failures and who whose permission do you need to ask to start again? John?
4: I, I think most of uh, most of our UX work is really in the enterprise space. And so, you know, in, in a little bit of contrast to, to the consumer-facing side, we are met with those same expectations. But in mm-hmm. business, in, in a lot of companies, there is an intolerance of failure. And and that yes. really makes designing effective user experiences very, very challenging if, if that's the starting point for an organization. So when we start, um, you know, down the road helping with this experience design and with prototyping and prototyping really being one of those most important things, checking with users, finding out if what you're designing is really solving a problem they actually have. Because in, I mean, no organization's ever seen a broken game of telephone where the problem is one thing on the ground Mm -hmm. and it's a different thing by the time it gets to the top of the house. So that, that, that willingness to prototype and to test and to validate some of those assumptions is so critical. And, and I think in, in business there is, there is a fear of failure uh, mm-hmm. And certain organizations can can reinforce that. And if we can skip that fear, if we can skip past that or tolerate just a little bit more of it to get to that prototype, to get to talk to people that are really going to use the end solution, to prototype it, to test it. And that testing sometimes means that you have to check your assumptions, go back to the drawing yep. board, and start on that prototype again. But it's so much better if you do it at the prototype stage instead of after development's finished.
1: You dropped so many interesting key words in there and the concept of fail fast, fail off, and I'm not sure how often a designer is supposed to be able to fail, but the culture, we're talking about the cor- corporate culture, aren't we, Sean, of, of giving permission and saying, let's learn from our mistakes, but let's not repeat them, and it's okay. Is there supposed to be a limit on how many times you can fail in a project and then, okay, we're not doing this again? Any quick thoughts on that?
4: Uh, I think that's a that's a great question. I, I don't know that there's a specific limit, but if uh, if you're getting into the you know second and third major miss, then there, there's there's probably a serious misalignment there.
1: There you go. Thank you very much. Just thought we would put that on the table, let people chew on that one. Thank you very much. And now I'm pleased to welcome Maricel Kabahag from SAP. And Maricel was unable to join us a couple of weeks ago, but she sent in an opening quote and some thoughts, and we mentioned her on the air. So here she is. And here's the quote for today. It's from Professor Erwin Corey. Everybody think comedy. Everybody thinks stand-up. Professor is in quotes because he really wasn't. He lived. He just passed away last year, actually. You know what, Maricel? he passed away one year and one day ago, February 6, 2017. He was born in 19, well, happy, belated, yeah, well, we miss you, Erwin. He was an American stand-up comic, a film actor, an activist, and he built himself as the world's foremost authority. Lenny Bruce, of his own type of renown, described Corey as one of the most Brilliant comedians of all time. And in the late 1940s, Corey unveiled his professor character dressed in really seedy but formal attire and sneakers. His hair was going in all directions, a la Albert Einstein. He would go on stage looking very preoccupied, and he would start a monologue with the word, however. And then he had a double talk. Let me just read you one quick, if you don't mind. One quick example, Mariselle. may I? Mm -hmm. Okay. However... We all know the protocol takes precedent over procedures. This parliamentary point of order, based on the state of inertia of developing a centrifugal force issued as a catalyst rather than as a catalytic agent, and hastens a change reaction and remains an indigenous briar to its inception. This is a focal point, uses a tangent so the bile is excreted through the pancreas. I kid you not, that was one of his monologues. Now let's get to the serious quote from Erwin Corey. Thank you, Marcel. I, just, I was so intrigued with that. Here's the quote you selected. If we don't change directions, soon we'll end up where we're going. That sounds like a Yogi berra too. Maricel, how have you been?
5: Great, and, and I'm really glad to be part of part two this
1: time. Well, we're very happy. Uh, we're happy to have you. I know the guys are. So talk to me about this quote. How in the world did you pick a quote from Erwin Corey, the professor, the world's foremost authority, because he certainly wasn't on most things, but talk to me about what this quote means for us today.
5: Um, well, Professor Corey, or Irving Corey, actually is is credited um, for being the um, the inventor of improvisational comedy. Which um, I, I don't know if you guys watch um, Westworld. That's a test uh, for the for the the host in that show. Um, you know, you know, if, if they're able to improvise and if they can improvise on any on everything, that's that's some sort of a test of intelligence. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I like this quote from Professor um, Irving Corey. For me, it means if we're not careful, we're going to end up where we don't want to be. Um, we all know that all the conveniences that we currently enjoy came from human intelligence. But what will become of us when we find ourselves in a world where human intelligence may not be at the top of the hierarchy? The digital age brings unparalleled, unparalleled advances in technology that changes all aspects of our lives. Technologies like artificial intelligence, natural language processing, AR, VR are changing, not just how we work or live or communicate, but also how we think. I think the the critical question is, what is the role of the human in the future world AI, and more importantly, artificial artificial general intelligence will come. We have a choice to make. Either we do something now to secure a good place for humans in the future, or we do nothing. If we do nothing, we must be prepared to accept a future defined by someone or something else. And as designers, I believe we have a responsibility to make sure that we secure that future.
1: Thank you. Very, very interesting. You, you dropped a lot of interesting thoughts and buzzwords on us, Maricel. We'll come back to some of those later. Thank you very much. Now it's time to go back around the table. It's a big table today. Matt Graycar, two questions. Where are you calling from? And what's in your cup today right now? Or what would you rather be drinking later? Talk to me. Calling from
2: Google's office in Boulder, Colorado. I'm currently drinking delicious boxcar coffee. Um, and I would, uh, I would probably prefer later drinking some more coffee, but from a company that my wife and I recently discovered uh, called Bespoken Coffee. And I think they're based out of uh, the northwest somewhere, Oregon or Washington, but it's a husband and wife and they, uh, and they are just you know kind of a small shop and they roast beans and send them to your door and they're absolutely delicious.
1: Oh, my. Yes. Bespoken Coffee Roasters owned and operated by Colin and Ann Schreiber, a husband and wife team of coffee professionals based out of Corvallis. I lived in Eugene, Oregon for several years, so I'm familiar with that area. Very, very interesting. Uh, I don't know if I'll read any more of that. It says it brings roasting under a second tried and true roof. Um, yes, it also has a sibling company. Oh, Tried and True Cafe and the sibling roasting company is Bespoken Coffee Roasters. Glad to know about that. Thank uh, you very okay. much. They've got a Twitter handle, Bespoken Coffee Roasters. They've got a Facebook page. Everybody go look them up. That sounds interesting. Thank you, Matt. Appreciate that. Sure. RJ Owen, where art thou and what art thou planning to drink?
3: I am sitting by the Westminster, Colorado Rec Center, looking out at the Rocky Mountains, and I am drinking some blue bottle coffee. Um, They used to be small and cool and bespoke, and now they've been purchased by the man, but their coffee's still (laughs) amazingly good. So. And Bonnie, you are the fastest Googler I have ever heard in my life. You looked that up so yeah. quickly. That was incredible. Was you
1: are so funny. I've already got Blue Bottle up here. Portland hipster icon down Coffee sent shockwaves through the craft coffee community when news broke this week that it was being acquired by West Coast coffee giant Pete's and something about here. Cush, cultishly adored Oakland, California based roaster Blue Bottle Coffee appears to be getting a little more corporate itself and that's in Eater Eater.com. Thank you for the- a compliment i appreciate that if you could see do you know what's going on on my screen right now rj do you have any idea
3: no idea i
1: can't even imagine I have an 8-page Word doc up with all of your bios, your photos, starting tweets and everything you sent me, your quotes, the sources and all of your roundtable notes. I've got a screen with a sprinkler dashboard here with three columns watching my tweets and the retweets and then I'm looking stuff up on another tab. Then I've got a full I'm size or well this is on an iMac 20 i27. Uh, I've got a, a very large sprinkler, I'm sorry, a, um, a Skype chat window and I'm Skype chatting with my engineer Aaron during the whole show. So that's all that's going on here. So your compliment is very It's like mission pre- control over there. <laughs> it is. It is. With a two-pound headset on, and I forgot to take off my earrings. You don't want to know. Thank you very much, RJ. Happy to look up the coffee. Love the coffee stories. Sean Severson, I can't ask you to top those. I'll just say, where are you, and what do you love to drink?
4: Well, we've got a a severe winter storm warning in in town today, so we asked our team to avoid the commute downtown if they can. So I'm I'm looking out over the valley from home. Um, And in my cup, I have some delicious espresso from a place called Oso Negro, uh, Spanish for black bear. It's in Nelson, B.C. And they have one of the most wonderful patios you can possibly experience with so many wonderful places to go and sit, have a conversation, and just enjoy the outdoors um and it's it's hard to enjoy their coffee um without thinking of that place if you uh, if you if you've been there so it's a, a it, wonderful reference for experience and and how the experience that you have once can can follow you and be associated with a brand with a name with a taste
1: well it's OSO SO negro correct you got it Here's the review on Yelp. The spot was recommended by locals I met after the on the hill after a great day of snowboarding. The decor is comfy, the service was friendly and helpful drip coffee was delicious okay and etc cetera, etc. Cetera. So they're all they're on TripAdvisor, they're on Facebook. they have their own own website Uh sought to retain the authenticity and artisanal quality of our coffees in the community warmth of our cafe in Nelson BC. So you're in British Columbia is that correct?
4: I, I'm, I'm in Alberta, but uh, I get out there okay. some absolutely outstanding skiing and mountain biking, depending on the season.
1: Very nice. Boy, we've had three great coffee recommendations today. We don't usually get that much unusual uh, naming of coffees, and I am looking them all up. Marcel, I'm not going to tell you you have to be drinking coffee today, but tell us what you're drinking and where are you calling from?
5: I am currently in New York, and um, no, I don't have anything on my cup today, although I'm loving the fresh, clean, crisp taste of sake nowadays. I don't have a favorite brand yet. We're going on a family vacation to Japan next month, so you could say I'm easing into vacation mode
1: early. <laughs> I like that. That's what, and you said sake, right? Yes. Sake. Okay. Saki. Uh, let's see. Okay. There's actually a writer named Saki, but we're talking about the drink, and I'll have to look that one up. And I'm... Oh, yeah. It's just rice wine. Saki is either S-A-K-I or S-A-K-E, rice wine. Okay. And uh, everybody can look it up on their own, but very, very interesting. I've had a little bit of sake in some uh, Japanese restaurants in on Long Island before I moved. I would share a little tiny cup of warm sake. Do you like it warm? Do you know, Maricel? I like it cold, actually. Ah, interesting. I'm not a big fan of the taste, so I liked it warm because never mind. Anyway, thank you very much. And you're in New York, and I'm not. I hear you have snow in New York today. Is that correct? I'm Not today. I, I'm not sure, but I, have, I don't see it. So maybe later okay. today. Well, my friend in Bayside told me this morning, and he's a couple miles away from you, that he was seeing snow already early this morning, and that meant no outdoor tennis. So boohoo for him, but thank you very much and say hello to New York for me. So we have Matt Gray Carr, we have RJ Ohm, we have Sean Severson and Marisol Cabahug, and we're talking about and around a very interesting topic, UX 2018. And what we haven't done, everybody, is we haven't decided how we're going to respond to the Dane Miller quote I used to open the show. UI is the saddle, the syrups, and the rains. UX is the feeling you get being able To ride the horse and rope your cattle. Can I have one sentence from each of you before we go to break? And if you agree or disagree, and what it like, two sentences. Uh, Matt, you want to go first? What does this mean to you? (laughs)
2: Um, It sounds uh, like a very exciting analogy. (laughs) Or (laughs) nothing. No, uh, I've heard so many of these analogies trying to differentiate UX and UI uh, and what those terms mean. Um, And I don't know, it did make me chuckle. I laughed out loud when
3: I read that one. I like it.
1: Okay, good. And now let's go to RJ Owen. You agree or disagree with Mr. Miller?
3: Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm kind of on the same team as Matt. I think it's a great quote, but, you know, there's a lot of, like, you know, the ketchup bottles and things like that trying to say this is UI <laughs> and this is UX. So, yeah, it's a good one, though. Okay. On All
1: right. Let's, let's move to Sean. Sean, you agree or disagree with the quote? Is it a decent analogy for you?
4: I think it's a good analogy. I'd, I'd, I'd switch it up to say it's the it's the skis and poles and your mitts and uh, and the experience.
1: Ah, on the that's, there that's, you go. A
4: closer to home for me.
1: We could have an analogy writing contest here on the show, but maybe we won't. And Maricel, do you agree or disagree? Did you like that quote from Dane Miller? I
5: like it, um, and I completely agree with him on everything else. Tools and technology, um, they're just the tools that you use to create the experience. UX is
1: the experience. Thank you very much for clarification. We're going to take a quick break. We've gone a little bit long on our first half, but we have had a good conversation. Great panel. Invited them back because they're so interesting. Matt Graycar, R.J. Owen, Sean Severson, and Maricel Cabahug. I'm Bonnie D. Graham. And before I forget, they don't let me anywhere near caffeine on radio show day, so all I'm drinking is a cool, clear mug of cool, clear water with a yellow straw hoping the sun will come back. I'm now in Durham, North Carolina, and it's kind of gray and gloomy out, but it's very cheery in here as I speak to my wonderful panelists. So this is coffee break with game changers if you're keeping track this is episode number 312 we started the show october 5th 2011 there you go so don't even think of touching that mouse that app that dial you know the drill don't want to miss the second half erin out
0: when it comes to business you'll find the experts here
1: We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up?
0: You're enjoying Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. You can send an email to bonnie.d.gram at sap.com. And you're invited to tweet your questions and comments during and after the show at Twitter, hashtag SAPRADIO. Now let's get back to Coffee Break with Game Changers.
1: We are indeed Coffee Break with Game Changers. The three of my four panelists had a coffee break somewhere, somehow. We learned about some very interesting, I'll say artisanal and interestingly named coffees. So now we're back and we're going to dive into the round table and we're going to start with a statement that Matt gray sent me before the show. Very provocative, Matt. Matt says, user experience design is the art of humanizing machines. Machines need to be relatable in order to be useful to people. Matt, tell us more and then we'll go around the table and see if your co-panelists agree or disagree. Matt?
2: Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I think uh, we talk about that around the office a lot, um, about how, you know, what we're doing as UX designers is actually trying to, trying to humanize these interactions that people have with machines. And the better that you can do that, the, the more successful um, you are at getting people to feel like they can accomplish their tasks and they can uh, work, with, work with the machine well. Um, I think, uh, obviously no communication will ever be, you know, deeper or clearer or more effective than, than communication between two people in person. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, the more that you can kind of make interactions with machines feel a little bit more like that, the better. Um, I work with a very talented UX writer, um, here at Google, uh, who she can look at my design. Um, understand kind of what, my, what, what I'm trying to help the user achieve, and then uh, insert language that's fun and informative and concise, and it, it makes my designs look ten times better. She's, she's breathing life into it um, hmm. because it's putting a, a human voice there in a way that I would not have thought to do as I'm thinking through, you know, these complex workflows and trying to get the user to their, to their ultimate goal.
1: Very interesting. Breathing life, a very interesting concept because we are talking about machines and people and, and that link be, with the UX and with the UI as the tool and the UX as the experience. RJ, Owen, love to get your thoughts on what Matt just shared. Yes.
3: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the, the interplay between um, writing and the actual like designed objects in an interface is really interesting to think about and to think about to what extent machines are Um, different or just extensions of uh, other elements in the built world, right? Because you think about like uh, a lot of the role in architecture has been to make buildings um, suitable for, for people, right? And really good architects are the ones who know how to take proportion and line of sight and light into consideration so that a building will be a really wonderful, uh, pleasing, um, or whatever the mood they're trying to evoke. Maybe they don't want it to be wonderful and pleasing, and trying to create mm-hmm. a certain mood and, and make a space interact with a person in a certain way. And so I think as UX designers, we're, we're sort of inheritors of that tradition going back, you know, thousands and thousands of years um, where we're trying to make objects or the world around us uh, suit a purpose for a person. And so it's, it's just interesting to see all of the different and complicated ways that that plays out when we're talking about digital interfaces um, because you have to consider the device itself. You have to consider the actual, like, graphical elements that you're presenting to the user. You have to consider the order those things are placed in. And then, like Matt said, we have to consider um, the words that may be printed on the screen or sounds the user's hearing, animations. And so these, these interactions, these built things, have become so complicated and so um, abstract that you can have, you know, 19 different specializations involved in in trying to create one sort of seamless experience, mm-hmm. and uh, and it is it's just I don't know it's a really fascinating thing to think about. So I, I love that quote. I love that idea about trying to make make ideas more um, sorry make machines more human.
1: Yep, and relatable. Thank you very much, Sean Sievertson, Thoughts?
3: You know, I
4: think the, the 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 enterprise can learn a lot from making things more conversational, more human. And when somebody new starts on a job, if they feel like they have to learn something complex, if they have to, you know, follow something that uses language that they aren't familiar with, it's, it's such a leap, it's such a gap. Uh, and it's it's so remarkably expensive to train, um, mm. you know, the the legions of people on that. And the more conversational, the more human, the more simple you can make that, um, the the easier it is to to adapt to it when you when you're faced with something new and when something changes
1: ah new and changing we got some words in there thank you very much Marisol Cabahug thoughts on what Matt introduced
5: um, yeah we, the advances in technology that are that now um, that, we, that are now available to us we have so many um, tools that we can now use uh, to get closer to how um, humans interact with humans. Um, rather than um, for humans to learn how machines um, communicate or the language of the machine. Um, there's so many possibilities right now with conversational, um, artificial intelligence, of course, virtual reality and so on, uh, that it's, it's, it's fascinating. And it's, 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 there's a lot of possibilities there for designers uh, to use this uh, to make all of these tools um, available to humans and make them usable um, to humans
1: you. <laughs> Thank you very much. We've got the word human in there a lot, and I think that's what we're trying to get to. Matt, I'm going to go right to some statements from RJ's list because I want to maximize our time. I think we've had a good conversation sure. around the table on your point. Thanks for that. RJ, let's look at how we figure out what people want. Here's a statement you sent. Real continuous ongoing customer research that uses ethnographic tools co- to collect qualitative insights as well as quantitative data points is the only way to really understand the needs of a population and provide the time Type of experience customers want. Who does the research? Who pays for it? How intensive does it be? How current does it have to be? I have so many questions. RJ, it's all yours. Yeah, no problem.
3: Um, yeah, well, UX research is a, uh, a growing field and a profession that's becoming more and more recognized, I think, by, by a lot of different companies. Um, as we realize that the speed of being able to deliver and iterate on the products and experiences that we provide to users, um, the speed that's available to us today Means that we can conduct ongoing, like constant research and be constantly tweaking, improving, and changing the products and services that we give people. And I think that, uh, companies that recognize and embrace that, who are sort of adopting the just in, mo- uh, just in time mentality to everything that they do, and they're employing ongoing, constant research, are the ones that can react and, and adapt the best to changes in the market and changes to, in customers' expectations. Uh, And it's just sort of amazing the number of people who kind of don't see that as valuable. And they'll do like once a quarter or once a year, they'll do some big market research study. And then they'll say, oh, we already did our research. We know what our our customers need or what our users want. Um, When the reality is that if we're not in a constant sort of dialogue through research with customers, we're really missing out on incredibly important pieces of information. And it opens the brand to being disrupted by somebody else who's, going to do a better job of listening. So I think that that role of research is one of the key differentiators between companies that are going to be really successful and continue to make it into the future and the ones that are going to uh, get disrupted and taken out by you know, a startup or something.
1: Thank you. Great point. And I'm assuming that research isn't just relegated to what did somebody say about us on Yelp yesterday afternoon or how many people uh got rid of got out of our website because they couldn't complete an e card transaction. Shouldn't we contact that person and find out what stopped her cold and why she didn't complete it after five tries? What's wrong with us? Who in the heck is she? Yeah, wouldn't you think? No, absolutely didn't happen. So we're talking about more than that. Let's go around the table on the research theme. Sean Sievertson, a conversion IS. What do you think? Agree or disagree?
4: I, I totally agree. Research is is, is critical. It, it, you know, some sometimes you can have a, a dedicated person going out and sitting next to people and doing A versus B testing and 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 following and, and and just watching and taking notes and really watching for the things that people don't tell you, but the things that you'll see if you watch them because it's automatic or they don't think to tell you. I think that's that's really critical, and if you if you just think about that as as you know talking to people um, and and working with them to understand what they really need and, and just genuinely empathize with what, what's what's the problem what's the what's the thing that we're trying to solve here, um, then that that research uh, pays dividends in in remarkable remarkable ways.
1: Thank you. We got a consensus around here. Let's see if Marisol Cabahug agrees. Marisol. Absolutely. Research
5: is the only way um, for you to get to know your customer intimately and um, in the best way for for, for you to continue to be successful as a company. Uh, you know, you can do, um, you can rely on on um, competitor research, but that's not going to bring you to the future, and that's not sustainable. Only um, customer uh, satisfaction and customer research um, will bring you to the future, and will make um, will make you successful long term. Your customers are never satisfied, by the way, and their um, and their needs um, keep changing, and so you need to get to know them and and do this research to make sure that you can address those ever-changing
1: needs um, accurately or better than your competition can. Thank you very much. I think we've got several votes for research here. Matt Graykarn, now I want to know what you think about that. Go ahead, Matt.
2: You definitely don't need research. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. To-
1: <laughs> <laughs> we, had, we had to have one dissenter here, and I think we <laughs> quietly nominated you. No, what do you really, really want to say, Matt?
2: No, I, you know, I think I'm a little spoiled being at Google because uh, Google takes research very seriously, um, in particular UX research. Uh, I'm, I, I work very closely with our UX researchers. And I, I think what I do want to say is I, I think that a lot of people, um, they look at research as being kind of a luxury and, and they say, you know, if we had the extra budget to, to be able to to invest in hiring researchers, our research team. Go and do that, then we would do it. But we just don't have those kinds of resources, and so we're just going to have to use our best intuition and take our best guess. And um, research doesn't have to be that complicated. I think Sean uh, kind of touched on this, but um, you know, for any designer, if you're if you're feeling uh, afraid to suggest that we need research, um, you know, to to your to your company, um, it can be very easy. You can do it um, simply by going to to a coffee shop, and talking to, uh, you know, buying buying coffee for seven people, if they'll sit down and look at your design and give you just some quick feedback, and um, the feedback that you get from mm-hmm. those people is invaluable. Um, I think you'd be really shocked at what you're going to hear. Um, they see things that you would have never seen, um, and even doing something that lightweight, it can only take a couple hours, um, it's just going to be hugely valuable. And I do want to say one more thing. I think for creative yeah. people, it's really hard to put your work Your your half-baked work and, and, you know, ideas that aren't finalized out in front of people. And that's true in any creative industry. Um, You know, musicians or artists, they don't want anyone to see until they're confident that they're done. And I think UX designers need to get past that. You need to just build your wireframes, even if it's a pencil sketch on a paper, and you need to show it to people and you need to get feedback early.
1: Thank you. All great points. Appreciate that. And, um, RJ, I'm going to move over to Sean and pick up a statement from his list because we are doing well on time. I want to make sure we get one from Sean and one from Maricel. Sean, here's what you say. This is an interesting comment. Creating delightful apps is about much more than just giving users a better UI over the top of an existing system. Need to know more about that, please, Sean.
4: I think when when people are, are used to a system, they they have expectations and they have a reference point for the way they've always done it. And when you can take uh, something that they used to have to go to, you know, one, or call it a transaction or one screen kind of thing, and you can make that simpler, that's, that's good. It's a step in the right direction. But to, to really provide a, a more transformative user experience, you need to get underneath what their, what their real goal or their objective is. Um, and so when you can take something like, hey, you know, some mornings I have to go and run this report so I can see if there's a problem with X, and when you stand back and maybe do a little bit of that research to throw that out again and find out that they actually run seven or eight or nine reports in the morning to go hunt for problems, then, then a real transformative kind of experience that you can provide them is have those reports kind of run automatically for them. And serve mm-hmm. up only the things that they look for in those reports, and let them kind of, you know, sift and sort through those a little more effectively. That that as a before and after, if if you're only fixing the the kind of the symptom of you know this report takes a little bit of time to run, and I got to go and hunt for something, make a prettier report is is that's that's okay, um, and and that that makes a that makes a small difference. Um, but when you when you really want to change that game, you need to go in and find out why are they running that report, find out what other reports they run and what problem are they really trying to solve again. And then find a way to go and do all of those different steps for them and serve them up something that that helps them get to um, the the short list of things they really need to pay attention and push that complexity down into uh, into something that's automatic for them. Uh, and that's that, I think is is really the 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 target kind of transformation that we that we want to aim for more often. And too often, just a simple UI change makes the screen a little prettier, um, you know, makes a button a little simpler mm-hmm. to find. And it, that's not moving the ball very far down the court. And I think if we Thank keep you. our eyes, if we til- tilt our yep. eyes up a little more, we can we can make a bigger difference.
1: Interesting. That's a lesson for the designers out there. Maris, I'd love to get your quick thoughts on what Sean just added, then we'll go around the table. And I've got one picked out from you to discuss, Mariselle. But Mariselle, what do you think about what Sean just said?
5: Yeah, this reminds me of what Steve Jobs uh, said, right? So UX is not um, just the way it looks; it's it's how it works. And um, yes. Sean just um, you know just uh, talked about um, you know what we used to do at SAP actually when uh, we would um, just simplify the screen or make it look uh, more beautiful, but it's not about that. It's about designing the workflow, and that's what um, we've learned over the years. And and so that's the reason why our users now get it um, get the changes that we're doing it's it you know it's really not about designing the screen um, just designing the screen it's really understanding what the users want to accomplish and designing the workflow uh, to make that happen um, more efficiently and also bring the light to the user
1: thank you maricel matt circling around to you what do you think about sean's statement
2: yeah, I think it's absolutely true, and I think, um, I think it was uh, Charles Dean, the designer, um, mm-hmm. who, who said something like, design is just solving problems or something. I think. I, think. I, I might be getting that totally wrong. But I think oftentimes UX designers struggle with finding the, the real problem, and I think um, it's important to really dig deep. You know, Users will tell you what they think the problem is all the time, but the more research you do and the more you can dig and talk to other people who have a similar problem, the more you can actually get down to the core of what they actually need and serve that up. And we see that in research all the time when we talk to people and, we, and they tell us their problems and then we offer them a solution and they say, oh, wow, yeah, I would have never thought about that, but that, that would totally fix my problem. Can you do that? <laughs> so I think, I, think, uh, I think Sean is absolutely right.
1: I found two quick uh, Charles Eames quotes for you. The details are not the details, they make the design. Is that the one you were thinking about?
2: No, I I might have gotten that totally wrong. I think it really was just, you know, design is solving problems, something really simple. But uh, I highly recommend Charles Eames' quotes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I'm on his brainy quote page. Uh, Yes, so thank you very much for that reference. And let's go around. Who was that now? That was Matt, right? So, Matt, I want to go to RJ. RJ, talk to us about what Sean said.
3: Yeah, I think Sean, Maricel, and Matt did a really great job of, of justifying the need for designers to understand... The core problem, and really concentrate on, you know, increasing the the things that really solve a problem for the user. Um, I'll just add that sometimes it's amazing, especially when you're looking at the scale of like an SAP or Google or you know really large companies. It's amazing sometimes what a change, a small what what an impact a small UI change can have. Where, you know, just increasing contrast on a certain UI element or thickening a border radius like all of a sudden you'll see thousands and thousands more people be able to complete Mm -hmm. a task so uh, i think i think you know there there's a there's an element sometimes where those little ui tweaks do make a huge difference Um, but sean's absolutely right you can't just like put new lipstick on the pig and and think that's gonna you know really impress people
1: Great point. Thank you. I'm moving on to something from Maricel, and it's a perfect segue from what we've just been discussing, Maricel. You say, it's no longer sufficient to specialize in graphic design or interaction design. Human-machine interactions have changed so much and will continue to change faster. It's almost impossible to answer the question, quote, what should I study to design for the digital age? Maricel, let's have your thoughts. We've got about three minutes, and if we don't go around the table on this, we'll go right to the predictions, but I really want to hear what you have to say, Maricel.
5: Um Yeah, so incidentally, I just had dinner with my family last Sunday and most of them home I haven't seen in years. And because they know I'm from the Silicon Valley, you know, predictably, the talk um, went to AI. And uh, because I'm in design, they're now asking. So uh, one of my sisters-in-law um, asked me the question, so um, my daughter is going to college and she's interested in design. What should she study? Um, I found that um, a very difficult question to uh, to answer. UX, I believe, evolved so much, um, and so now it's it's more of an in interdisciplinary study uh, from literature, cognitive science, psychology, fashion to dance, and linguistics. So it's all of this now um, we must know or we must uh, look into um, to be able to design for all the n- new technologies that are coming our way. Um, The future UX will require new domains of knowledge and expertise and qualifications. Among these um, is a new way of telling a story. Um, And so um, I think it's very exciting for all of us. Um, It becomes a necessity for us to be able to weave the different worlds together, the graphical with the conversational, um, the body and what we think, the physical with the virtual world world in a way that um, we never imagined before. And the good thing about all of these changes and all of these new technologies is that human has to um, remain in the center, and we need to focus more on on the user um, because we need to understand um, what works for the user, the human capabilities that we are, um that we as as designers. Are Mm -hmm. supposed to design um, and enhance with um, all of these new capabilities.
1: Thank you, Maricel. I think we're going to have to pass on going around the table, but I have a feeling the other panelists would agree, although Matt might take the contrary position. I'm not sure. (laughs) (laughs) Matt. you agree okay that's good to know so Matt it's time for our predictions roundtable we call this the uh, we call this the crystal ball but a few weeks ago I was describing to Aaron my engineer that I brought a disco ball with me that I bought 40 years ago out of the uh, the then going defunct uh, hotel in Eugene Oregon and so we decided we might change the crystal ball segment to the disco ball segment we're just gonna have to deal with that so Matt great car why don't you tell me look into the crystal ball I can give you exactly 60 seconds that's all we have left for you but I know you you're going to pack a real while up with your predictions. Matt Graycar. 60, they're all yours. Go.
2: Thanks. Oh, man, I thought I predicted the future last episode, and now I have to do it again.
1: All over uh, again. There's, there's a new future now, Matt. We already did that future. It's already gone.
2: <laughs> Go ahead. I mean, I guess I would say, um, you know, I think there's a lot of work to be done in accessibility um, and in uh, impaired users, and I think that that's a really exciting landscape where um, going back to humanizing machines that we were talking about earlier, I think as we um, uh, as we create experiences uh, and we allow people to interact with machines more like they would interact with humans, um, we're kind of opening the door to allow people who um, were kind of left behind or not able to use technology like everyone else was. Um, and there are so many new opportunities now to make technology a lot more accessible to people.
1: Thank you very much. Brief and to the point, RJ Owen, I have 60 seconds with your name on them. Go ahead.
3: You know, uh, something that Marisol said there really sort of struck a chord with me. I think in the future, the design of of the built world is going to be, it's just going to continue to become more and more interdisciplinary, as she said. And so uh, today there's a real, there's still a real divide between the people who design things and the people who build things, as much as we try to to break that down. And I think in the future, that is just going to continue to become more and more integrated um, as we lose this sort of single designer idea and have to incorporate so many, so many disciplines into the, the things that we're producing.
1: Thank you very much, Sean Severson. There's 60 waiting for you. You're all doing very well. Thanks for keeping me on my clock. Go ahead, Sean.
4: Oh, thanks very much. I, I think the, the uh, opportunity to build on the people who uh, design things and the people who build them is going to be really important. I think the the uh, consulting teams that you used to see, for instance, who would come through and say, you know, here's the problem you really need to solve. Here's the way to think about it. I think that is the the first step. I think the um, the teams that used to help solve those problems are going to be shifting into user experience and really shifting into. Helping organizations, and whether it's Google or or whether it's SAP, helping to solve problems differently than they used to. Helping people to hand over a better problem to solve to the people that build it.
1: Thank you very Solving much. A and around user experience. Yep, I think we are. We're gonna to have to come up with a new name for it. UI, UX, UU, UU, U. We're gonna come next time we all meet. Maybe we'll do a part three. We're gonna have a. Uh, we're gonna see who wants to rename UI and UX. I think it's time for a new part of the alphabet. Maricel, up to you. Sixty seconds. They're all yours. Go ahead. Predict, please.
5: All right. As the technological changes disappear, it opens up a whole new chapter for us. To we explore the way um, we perceive and explore and discover things in the mixed world, the digital and the the real world. I predict um, how we break those experiences into small pieces and reconstruct them into a framework will
1: become the future designers' expertise. Thank you very much. Oh, my goodness. I can't thank the four of you enough. You got me out just in time. We actually have a minute and a half left, so I'm going to do a little promo here. I'm going to predict the future. Tomorrow, Thursday, what is it, February 8th, we are debuting a brand new series here, one of our four new series, and it's called Game-Changing Business Model Disruption, and we're going to talk about extensions. Um, yes, I will tell you more about it when I see you tomorrow. I'm looking at my notes here. Let's see what we're going to be talking about. One second here. Yes. Yeah, Yes, yes, yes. Bring up the email, Bonnie. Anyway, we will be on with Thorsten Lydic from SAP, who was a guest on one of our Coffee Break shows last year. He is here we go, A Disruptive Innovation, a Vibrant Ecosystem of Cloud Solution Extensions. Going to be a very interesting show. No, we won't get in the weeds. It won't be Tech Talk, but it will be very interesting. One minute to go. So, Matt Graycar, such a pleasure to have you back. And say hello to everybody at Google. Sean Sievertson of Convergent IS, RJ Owen, and, of course, Maricel Cabahug. I'm Bonnie DeGro. And I want to do a shout out quickly to Ira Burke and his team at Internet of Things with Game Changers Radio, who were the first ones to see these four brilliant people on UX and invite them to that show a couple weeks ago. And I poached them and brought them back. And it's been a really good decision. So here's my call to action. You know what's coming. Fasten your seatbelt, whether you're walking, you're driving, you're riding. I need a seatbelt to do these shows. Some days I think I'm just going to fly out of my chair with excitement about what my guests are saying. Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a Game Changer today just like matt just like rj just like sean and just like maricel bonnie d graham signing off talk to you tomorrow morning right here on the business channel bye bye
0: thanks again for tuning in to coffee break with game changers presented by sap the best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign R A D I O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.
1: Thanks again for listening to the preceding
3: program.